do you do you have a, a pre-meet kind of run straight through it run straight into it sorry say that again how is uh, how's the audio now oh it's a lot better that's a lot better okay you can hear me now yep i got you a lot clearer now yep thank you okay good um so so yeah i mean um dr jones do you um uh, like to do a pre-meet beforehand or do you just run straight into it how does it how what's your preference just go jump right into it yeah cool cool i will do um i've hit start recording but uh, i'm a bit of a a noob at this so if you guys are recording at your end that'll be great so yeah, as long shall... as it's recording it's it's fine just let it roll and then you can trim the front end off it's not perfect. Hard. It's quick time or whatever. Perfect. Cool. So I, I'll shoot straight into it. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Jones. Um, I'm joined today by Dr. E. Michael Jones. Dr. Jones is a Catholic scholar and intellectual. He is founder of Culture Wars magazine and author of several best selling books, including Logos Rising A History of Ultimate Reality. He's also known for his scholarly expose of Medjugorje in 1988, which caused shockwaves in the Catholic world. Dr. Jones joins me today to chat through some challenging topics. Hopefully this will be enjoyable to listen in on, but also informative and provoking. Dr. Jones, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a, quite a turbulent few months just globally as you as you obviously well know, but also for, for yourself and your platform um, on YouTube. How's that kind of affected you um, with, uh, with the whole delisting of YouTube? We are struck down, but not abandoned, as St. Paul said. So uh, the, we continue to sell in spite of their, uh, sell our books in spite of their attempts to suppress us. This, we, are, we are in the middle of a, a crisis here. Uh, the crisis began in 2019 with the battle over the internet. It is now uh, being extended to a point where uh, the internet is going to be reduced to uh, basically politically correct speech uh, run by yeah. Jewish commissars. Uh, we have the most the most recent battle. Surprisingly, uh, is uh, Facebook. Uh, apparently, uh, everything uh, that uh, the Facebook. Uh, editors and uh, the people in charge there say has been to completely roll over whenever uh, uh, the Jews complain about hate speech and it's not enough. So now they're, 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 the big battle is over whether Facebook is going to accept the international Holocaust uh, review or um, whatever standards on uh, anti-Semitism which means basically you're not allowed to criticize a Jew and you're not allowed to criticize Israel. Anything that could be remotely construed as criticism, not uh, 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 you know, inciting to violence or anything like that, as criticism will be banned if these people have their way. And so there's some pushback now. Neve Gordon has just written an article. Neve Gordon is an Israeli. He's in London now uh, as a pr professor. Uh, and he is uh, saying that this is not right, that uh, they, they, they are going to, they're asking for trouble if they impose this type of uh, speech restriction on Facebook. 
but that's where it stands right now. Uh, we are in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a war. We're also in the middle of a war in the United States, in the middle of a color revolution. And COVID is part of it. Uh, you've been locked down more than we have. But uh, the point of yeah. this is to prevent uh, Donald Trump from re being reelected in the fall. Uh, if uh, there are plotters who are going, the best way to plot something is in the open. So you can Google Norm Eisen and Transition Integrity Project, and you can see uh, what uh, this group of people is planning to do uh, at the time of the election. As as today is uh, the feast day of Saint Michael, I think it'd be wise to, you know, ask for his blessing and, and intercession that he might help us in our struggles with sin and temptation. Um, dear St. Michael, help us in our battle with evil and, and bless this conversation we're about to have. Um, thank you uh, again, Dr. Dr. Jones. I'd like to begin by offering a bit of a reflection. As we know, uh, God's providential hand guides the epic story of salvation history at each biblical turn. As Catholics, we know that Christ's arrival fulfilled the promises made to the Jewish people and that he instituted the church through Peter. The Bible was canonized and the early church and followers used Aramaic, Greek and Latin to communicate to the world. Thus began the evangelization of the world and ministry to it, with their head at Rome close to the reigning secular power of the age. The church flourished, doctrine, liturgy, custom and nurturing issued forth from the institution that Christ founded. A reflection that I have found interesting is that the journey I've just described is intrinsically linked to definitive cultures, Greek, Latin, Hebrew. Yet the church is universal for all people and cultures. It was indeed necessary for the church's mission that she set her foundations in the heart of the most developed civilizations of her times. But in the globalized world that we live in today, how do we reconcile the westernization or Latinization of the church with her universe. So that's that's the question at the end of that, uh, Michael. In case you missed that, so so globalized. There is a good. I didn't I didn't hear the question. Something cut out. So so uh, go again. Uh, uh, restate the question, please. In the globalized world that we live in today, how do we reconcile the westernization or Latinization, for another way of putting it, of the church with her universality? Okay, well, uh, Latinization is one particular uh, phase that we're talking about, a long phase, but one particular phase. Uh, and over this, for the entire history of uh, the, the Catholic Church, there's always been the temptation to associate with one particular uh, group of people, one particular civilization, one particular pattern of thought. And of course, the first example of that was the Hebrew people. Uh, there were people at the time of um, uh, the apostles who thought that uh, in order to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew. You had to be circumcised. And of course, uh, there was a battle here uh, between St. Peter and St. Paul over whether you had to follow the rituals of the Old Testament. Well, they broke that. They broke that mold. Uh, it was painful to a number of people, but uh, in order to, to grow, in order to be itself, in order to remain itself, the church had to change. And it had to yeah. change by adopting Greek. And so the next culture that was adopted was Greek culture. 
They were adopted. The Greek language was the lingua franca here. St. Paul spoke Greek. Uh, St. Peter did not. And so St. Paul became the apostle of the Gentiles and went to Greece and tried to speak to them. Now, this is not uh, as simple as it seems because uh, Greek, uh, the, the two basic uh, uh, sources of Christianity are the Hebrew and the Greek, and they are different. The Hebrew is a language that is understands history, but there's yep. no real philosophical background. And the Greeks understand philosophy, and they don't understand history, certainly not salvation history. And so there was a, 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 a an impasse here, uh, and uh, it had to be broken. The, the we had to the, the gospel had to break into the new world, and Paul was the man who did it. Now it wasn't without problems. And in uh, Logos Rising, I talk about uh, Saint Paul and his speech to the Are, Are, at the Areopagus, which was a philosophical society in Athens. The speech did not go well. Uh, he started talking about this man, and he was crucified, and he rose from the dead, and they said, what? And they said, well, we'll talk about this some other time, and they walked out, except for two people. And Christianity did not really come to Athens for another 500 years. And after that, uh, Paul went to Corinth, and he had much better reception among sailors and prostitutes than he had among philosophers in, in Greece, and in, in, I'm sorry, in Athens. And I'm saying one man who understood this was St. John, uh, who wrote his gospel with Greeks in mind by talking about Logos. In the beginning, there was Logos. Logos was with God, and Logos is God. This is an, a, a wholesale adoption, not wholesale, but it is an adoption not only of the Greek language, but of Greek philosophical concepts. And that was the new civilization. That was the new uh, enculturation of the gospel. Uh, that replaced, did not replace, it, it, it extended, it brought to fulfillment uh, the Hebrew, the Hebrew uh, enculturation of the gospel. And that in turn was succeeded by the, the Latin enculturation of the gospel, which had more to do with administration and, and other, other things. The Roman Empire eventually collapsed and it was replaced by the Holy Roman Empire, which was basically Christianity taking over the administration of Europe. So uh, you can go along in history. If you, if you read St. Jerome, uh, this is a man who cannot conceive of the church without the Roman Empire to protect it, uh, without Roman civilization at its basis. St. Augustine appealed to the Roman Empire, to the legal arm of the Roman Empire, to protect the Catholic Church against the Donatists. And when he was on his deathbed, the Vandals swept across northern Africa and uh, destroyed the Roman Empire, uh, and that meant the end of the Catholic Church in North Africa. It never came back, yeah, certainly not to the extent that it was there before. The Donatists, the heretics, took it over, and once heresy became commonplace, in North Africa, it prepared the way for Islam, which was, in some sense, as Belloc pointed out, a Christian heresy. So we go on and on through history. There are always people who can't imagine how the church could survive without the king of France protecting it. Or more cl closer to our age, how the church, Catholic church could survive in a world uh, where threatened by communism if it weren't for the protection of the United States of America. And all of these uh, accommodations all fail in the end. 
and the church always outgrows whatever group it's in, and it always moves forward, and that's the situation we're in right now. Uh, they're compounded by the fact that uh, countries like England and Scandinavia, uh, where Protestantism became the official religion, have all uh, disestablished, in yeah. some sense or other, their state churches. So Protestantism well, is Protestantism has now uh, disappeared, basically, as a state religion in these countries, and that has created a vacuum, and that has created an identity crisis in countries like England and Scandinavia. Was Vatican II a way of opening the church up to the world? Just to follow on, on, on my point about uh, how we reconcile uh, the history of the church you know, steeped Western uh, cultures with her universality and, and reconciling that. Was Vatican II a way of opening the church up to the world, Dr. Jones? I think, I think it was, uh, the, the historical circumstances are uh, based on the last days of Pius, Pope Pius XII. Uh, when John XXIII was elected Pope, Cardinal Ottaviani went to John XXIII and said, we have to call a council. So this was not a liberal initiative, if you want to put it in those terms. This was a, a man who, whose motto was Semper Idem, which is always the same, not yep. a, a, a flaming uh, 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 belief in evolution uh, or the evolution of church doctrine by any means. But he felt that the church was in a state of crisis, first of all, because uh, of the circumstances of Pius XII's papacy. Uh, he concentrated a lot of power into the hands of the papacy. And then at the end of his life, he was non compus mentis. I'm talking about Pius XII now. Pius XII was having visions. Uh, and the church was paralyzed, could not move forward because he, he refused to delegate uh, responsibility. The other problem at this point was external, and that was the problem of the Cold War. So now the church has found itself, finds itself after the war, we're talking about almost certainly the end of the council coincided with 20 years after the end of World War II. Uh, but you're, uh, the church finds itself as a, a European entity between two superpowers, neither of which is uh, essentially European. You have America on the one hand and the Soviet Union on the other. And it was Cardinal Ottaviani who wrote the preliminary documents of Vatican II. Uh, they're worth reading. Uh, I cover this in my book, uh, John Cardinal Crowell and the Cultural Revolution, because he has a sense that, that the church is equally, uh, both sides are problematic in their way. Obviously, yeah. communism, atheistic communism is a problem, but also he starts talking about psychoanalysis, Hollywood films, and he's clearly talking about America. And also, the, obviously, the hidden subtext here with psychoanalysis in Hollywood is also the Jews. And that's a, a neuralgic issue as well. So they're trying to work their way out of this kind of peasant Catholicism, uh, which was an enculturated Catholicism, into a, a Catholicism that can speak the language of the world that it lives in without losing uh, the essentials of the faith. Now that's that's a that's a tall order, uh, and if you can bring that off, you're you're better than most people who tried it 
uh, in this period of time. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> agreed. Um, uh, this kind of leads on quite nicely to, to my next question, which is Catholicism in Asia and Africa is, is flourishing by many accounts. These civilizations have long been restrained spiritually and these shackles have loosened through the passage of time. The information age and globalization for all their ills have played some part in this. Whilst there are promising signs of a, of a revival in the numbers of vocations in Europe, many parishes in the West have African priests plugging their gaps in supply. What role, if any, do you see Asia and Africa playing in the future of Catholicism, Dr. Jones? Well, they're providing a lot of uh, bodies, a lot of human beings uh, uh, as part of the church. I was in, uh, I was spent time in India a few years back, spent six weeks in India. And uh, my guide was a priest there who had founded seven schools. He alone founded wow. seven schools. And you go to those seven schools, uh, you show up at one of them, it's 5,000 students all wearing Catholic school uniforms. It reminded me of Philadelphia in the 1950s. <laughs> Philadelphia had, uh, at that time, had the largest Catholic grade school in the world at Most Blessed Sacrament Parish, and it had the largest Catholic high school in the world, uh, Cardinal Doherty. So 3,000 grade school students in one school and 5,000 high school students in another school, all in Philadelphia. Uh, they are gone. <laughs> Both of them have disappeared because of the ethnic cleansing that I described in my book, uh, The Slaughter of Cities. But the point uh, I'm trying to make is they are there now in, in India and to a certain extent in Africa. It was more striking in India than it was in Africa, but you see the same thing. I was in Bungoma uh, in, uh, in Western Kenya. And uh, there again, 1,000 students, of the priest founded the school five years ago. They have 1,000 students all wearing Catholic school uniforms, which is a, a, an interesting aspect of the whole Kenyan thing. So the problem is, uh, so I said, you know, this is great, but uh, don't count on it because it can be destroyed uh, in a very short period of time. And that's precisely what happened in Philadelphia. They did not make, the, Philadelphia was in many ways a unique situation because of the ethnic cleansing, okay? The Catholics were basically driven from the city of Philadelphia, driven out of their ethnic neighborhoods, forced to move to the suburbs, and in the suburbs, they lost their, their identity. And that caused uh, problems with the transmission of the faith that was compounded by all sorts of things, sexual liberation, all sorts of other things, okay? The, mm -hmm. the problem yeah. in, in both India and, and Kenya is, is education. It's education. What does it mean to be educated? Well, it means sort of, yeah, you have to learn how to read and write, but there are all this layer upon layer of, of uh, uh, parts to education. And the question is, are we going to reach these higher levels? Are we going to make contact with Logos here at the higher levels? That's the challenge. That's the challenge. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, in Africa, the main challenge uh, facing Africa, uh, East Africa in particular, is the legacy of polygamy, uh, which has led to a, a failure to, uh, to understand how to mobilize labor. Uh, the epitome of this would, was uh, Julius, Julius Nerere, who was the Catholic president of uh, Tanzania. I was invited by the Bishop of 
Musoma to go there and write a biography because they were preparing the, for his canonization. Uh, he uh, was one of, uh, he, he was the, daughter, the son of a woman who was one of 17 wives of his father. Uh, he grew up in wow. a polyg polygamous culture. He converted to Catholicism. Uh, and then there is the legacy of that. What is the yeah. legacy of that? Well, it came out in a, in a conversation he had with his brother. His brother had eight wives. So he says to his brother, why, why, um, why do you have so many wives? Well, I need the children to work my farm. And so Nereri says, why don't you get a tractor instead? That epitomizes the whole situation in East Africa. In other words, you had a polygamous culture that could not mobilize labor because you had no experience, because the labor was done by your children. So you didn't, you didn't hire people, you didn't have job descriptions, you didn't have anything. You, you, your children worked the shamba, and that was that. And then we have the, the making contact with the industrial, with the, the world of the 20th century, which happened over this period of time. And in particular, you have Nereri being completely infatuated with uh, the uh, industrialization of agriculture in the Soviet Union and even, uh, even China. Nereri idolized Mao Zedong. He thought that the Great Leap Forward, which ended up starving about mil millions of Chinese to death, he thought that was a great idea and tried to implement it in, in Tanzania and it failed. He called, it was called yeah. Ujamaa Socialism, uh, uh, Ujamaa being the Swahili word for family. And he didn't know what it was, but he knew that uh, it was some form of socialism. And uh, he knew that, he, that the Soviet Union had brought tractors in and they had succeeded. And so he tried the same thing and it failed miserably. It failed to this day. So that's, so this, this I, I mentioned that because this is part of, the patrimony of Europe that we don't even think about anymore. Yeah. The, the legacy of the Benedictines is Ora et Labora. Uh, when they came uh, to and met my German ancestors when they sailed down the Danube and built monastery, monasteries, the main thing my German ancestors were interested in is chasing pigs through the forest. It was the Benedictines who taught my ancestors how to work. And that took a thousand years. And you're not going to get something like German labor, the labor that can create a BMW overnight. It's not going to happen. It's going to be a long-term process. And it, it, that's, that's the challenge right now in East Africa, whether you can take a, 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 a population. I, I went to the, Again, I went to the Catholic school, Strathmore Academy in Nairobi. They're all these guys, it's, it's a boys' school, it's a high school. They all show up. They all got blue blazers on, gray slacks. They all look like English uh, school uh, students. Uh, and they're all bright. But the question is, are, are the Kenyans going to be able to mobilize their labor? That's going to be yeah. the crucial issue. It's, it's definitely... Still some challenges to overcome, but definitely fertile land as we, in the context of the future of Catholicism, I completely agree. Um, I, th I want to keep with the, loosely with the theme of universality, but slowly move on to, to that. Um, and I've got a couple of questions I'd like to ask you, Dr. Jones. The, the Novus Ordo Mass, 
mass in the vernacular and the reforms since Vatican II. Obviously, we've seen much liturgical abuse as a result of faulty implementation of the reforms. But how does the Novus Ordo Mass fit into the context of a universal church? Well, uh, it, it was a coming, an admission uh, of, of the fact that uh, Latin, uh, which was the language of the Roman Empire and, and, and basically the root pretty much of all European languages, one way or the other, uh, yeah. just did, didn't apply to, to Kenya uh, or India. I went to I went to India and I w listened to mass and I attended mass in Konkani uh, and I learned two words in Konkani, Alleluia and Amen. They were the only two words I understood. Uh, so I was completely uh, adrift, but the other people understood what was going on. I, I attended mass in Kenya in Swahili. Um, it's it's basically an admission that uh, that these people just don't have the relationship to the Roman Empire that Europeans had. And if, if you're forcing them to, uh, I mean, it, did, did, did I really have to be forced to learn Latin? No, I don't, I don't really feel that way. I, first of all, my, when I was growing up, when I was a boy, the mass was in Latin. Uh, I immediately studied Latin as soon as I went to high school, and it seemed easy, and it seemed, uh, uh, it opened up a lot of, uh, the vocabulary in English, it was perfectly comprehensible. It helped me when I went to Germany and studied German and so on and so forth. Uh, is that generalizable yeah. to to Africa at this point? Uh, I think that the, the, the decision of the church fathers was no, that the vernacular, you know, there was some superiority to, to the vernacular. Now, yeah. what you you lose uh, universality when you do that. As I said, if if they had the mass in Latin, I would have understood it. But in Konkani, I can't understand it, but they understand it, and they understand Konkani better than 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 Latin, and so it's a trade-off. That's it's, the only way I can see it. It's uh, it's I guess it's one of those paradoxes of uh, of the faith as well, isn't it? Because it, Latin is universal in that it is you know it was at one point the language of the liturgy, but for a universal church, um, westernization is a, a universal application uh, of the liturgy. And that's the way I kind of look at the Novus Ordo, uh, which, as you know, over the past few decades is coming under attack. So what do you say to those, uh, Dr. Jones, who say that John's revelation gives us an insight into heavenly worship? And it is Latin Mass, the incense vestments, candles, is all akin to a Latin mass and not the Novus Ordo. Therefore, the Novus Ordo must be avoided and we shouldn't go to it. The, I'm not sure I follow the logic here. Did you say John's revelation? Yes. Are you talking so about it, the Gospel of St. John? Yes, sorry. Just Are to you be, talking yeah, about the prologue? You're talking about the prologue to the Gospel That's of right. St. John? So uh, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't see any real liturgical implications from that that document, that document is a metaphysical document, which uh, is much more abstract than any type of uh, liturgical uh, implementation of it. I agree. It's, the reason I bring it up is because it's a fairly common argument that is used to discredit the Novus, uh, that it doesn't reflect 
John's revelation in the gospel of what is sacred worship. That's one, uh, an argument. Well, that I mean, to, anyway. I, to, if you want my honest opinion, I don't think the Latin translation reflects uh, uh, reflects the depth of that either. Yeah. I mean, in, in principio erat verbum. Uh, well, we're stuck again with the word verbum. Yeah. Uh, well, that's the same problem in any any European language other than Greek, because no European language has the richness of the word logos in it. Yeah, that's the problem there. Uh, so I I don't I I don't see this have this is not this is not the issue. I can't. I mean, there's a certain group of people that would like to trace everything back to the liturgy, and I'm not one of them. Yeah. Uh, I, I just don't feel that way. I mean, I feel that, you know, it's like, yes, the, the liturgy changed. Yes, things got bad. But to say that one was connected to the other reminds me of that it's of the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. There Indeed. were lots of things that happened during this period of time. And a lot, and I can cite a lot of things that were much more relevant to the, to the damaging of the faith than, than the change in the liturgy. Now, on the other hand, there are, I mean, just talk to a priest who's actually a seminarian who, who celebrates uh, and is planning to celebrate the, the Mass in Latin, and he said that lots of uh, traditional understandings, for example, the traditional teaching on the Jews simply gets dropped uh, because of the translation. The translation becomes an excuse to censor the gospel uh, and remove things that are culturally sensitive, like references to the Jews, which is one of the most culturally sensitive issues uh, we, we have right now. That's a problem. Uh, I friend, uh, my, my friend, the late Paul Mankowski, was a scholar, uh, taught, studied uh, classics at University of Chicago, classics at Oxford, and Semitic philology at Harvard. And behind the scenes, he fought for a, an accurate translation of the English text of the liturgy. So this is a battle. There's no question that it's a battle going on. There are feminists who want to bodlerize the liturgy. There are feminists who want to destroy our understanding of the Trinity by refusing to re use male pronouns to refer to God the Father. This is yeah. all a problem uh, that can affect the liturgy, but it's not intrinsic to a, a vernacular liturgy. It's not intrinsic to it. Amen. And, uh, I completely agree. I think um, the connection between liturgical abuse and the implementation is not fully appreciated by many. And I'm not sure how many of the faithful truly understand the Sacrosanctum Concilium, which, of course, you know, it's it's not the easiest thing to understand, but I think there's something that we're missing. I want to keep um, going with this thread um, and just move on to Vatican II and um, to uh, Archbishop Colin Maria Vigano and some of the things that he's he's been saying, which I'm sure will have crossed your desk. Um, so I just want to quote um, from Pope St. John XXIII, who said this one month, one month before the Second Vatican Council convened. Quote, the prophetic words pronounced in view of the final consummation of the world inspire the good and generous dispositions of men, especially at certain periods in history, to a fresh start towards the highest peaks. Lift up your heads because your redemption is at hand. Luke chapter 21. Consider spiritual preparation. The council which is to meet in a few weeks seems to merit that invitation of our Lord. End quote. 
And at the opening of the council, um, Pope St. John XXIII also prayed that God would grant us a second Pentecost. Can you offer any reflections, Dr. Jones, on Vatican II in the context of salvation history and from an eschatological perspective? Uh, well, it, the, the era was certainly optimistic. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, and then uh, something happened. And the question is, what happened? Uh, and I've been, I've been grappling with this for my entire adult life in one way or another. Uh, one of the things that you could say that happened uh, was the assassination of John Kennedy, uh, which had an effect, a devastating effect on the United States from which we have not recovered. We simply have not recovered the people who assassinated Kennedy are now in charge. Lyndon Johnson was in on the conspiracy. It was covered up by, by saying that it was a lone deranged gunman. This had an, an enormous effect on the morale on the United States of America and on, on the Catholics that are, that are here. It put an end to the optimism. The optimism died at some point or other along this line. And what you, what you saw was uh, an implement, uh, a hijacking. Now, I'm going to say that the hijacking uh, was done by a certain group of people. Uh, and I can't, I can't mention their name without getting into trouble. I think that the Jews were heavily involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I think that they were heavily involved in psychological warfare against the Catholic Church at this time. Uh, the, the, the Vatican Council led to the collapse of the Legion of Decency, which was the only way the Catholics in the United States could keep control over Hollywood. Uh, it was done uh, by, uh, by using a, a Holocaust film. The Holocaust had been weaponized at this point, and it was used as a weapon against Catholic people. It was weaponized to destroy the uh, Oberammergau Passion Play. I could go on, on and on in this direction. But the most devastating part of it was that the, the Jewish-controlled media took over the interpretation of Vatican II documents. And they meant what the media said they meant. And so, for example, with Nostra Aetate, it means that the church was wrong for 1,500 years, and they apologized, and they'd be guilty of the sin of anti-Semitism, and the Jews could get to heaven without uh, baptism. This is, none of this is in the document, but that's the interpretation that was imposed upon the document by the class of people that controlled our interpretations. And those people have pretty much taken control of the interpretive structure of the Catholic Church. And that is, in my opinion, the biggest uh, uh, crisis facing Catholic tradition to this day. We now have de facto acceptance of um, a, a, a dual covenant theology among many uh, high members of the Catholic Church, uh, which means that baptism is not necessary for salvation. And if baptism is not necessary for salvation, then the whole mission of the church collapses. And I think the, we still, the main problem is that we can not address this issue. Because as soon as you say the word Jew, the Jewish interpretation of that word comes in and they interpret any criticism of any Jewish behavior as anti-Semitism. And that has been made illegal. 
in many European countries. And now we have uh, a group of uh, Jews who are trying to make this the norm for the Internet as well, specifically Facebook. There's a battle now over whether Facebook, as I said before, is going to implement the International Holocaust uh, Association's view of, of uh, speech. Speech. That is the biggest crisis facing the Catholic tradition right now. We are in complete disjunction, for the most part, with Catholic tradition. The, the reason this why, issue. the reason why um, I ask about in the context of salvation history and from an eschatological perspective is because uh, have you heard of the author Stephen Wolford? I'm not sure if you, if you've heard of him. Um, I've I've got a book of his, um, and he puts forward the uh, thesis in one of his chapters that Vatican II was a, a prophetic um, council because when it was called, the uh, the uh, you know the fathers knew that we were headed into what would be uh, you know categorically end time scenarios, um, and it it was. As Pope uh, Saint Saint John the Twenty Third says, you know, a second a calling for a second Pentecost. Um, just to kind of keep on that same um, thread, Pope Pope Saint John Paul II said in, in nineteen ninety four, the Second Vatican Council was a providential event whereby the Church began the more immediate preparation for the jubilee of the second millennium. The best preparation for the therefore can only be expressed in a renewed commitment to apply as faithfully as possible the teachings of Vatican II to the life of every individual and of the whole church, end quote. From the hijacking of Vatican II by liberals to the rejection of it by traditionals, which we're seeing very often today, what is the fundamental message of Vatican II, if you could distill it to, uh, you know, as much as you can, what is the fundamental message of Vatican II for Catholics, which is being missed. Well, that's that's a tall order. To all of those documents, complex documents, uh, a book of eight hundred pages. My edition is eight hundred pages long. To distill that into one message would be, I, I think, that would be uh, presumptuous of me to do that. On the other hand, I mean, I think that uh, the Vatican II they, they did solve certain problems. Uh, yeah, it, I think it solves this, the, the church-state problem. If you read Dignitatis Humani and, and look at the actual text, as opposed to the notes that got imposed upon it or the interpretation that got imposed on it by John Courtney Murray, who was basically uh, the CIA's agent through time life uh, in trying to get the church to improve the separation of church and state. It did not approve that, just as it did not exonerate the Jews in Nostra Aetate from responsibility for the death of Christ. These are all myths that grew up after Vatican II and were imposed on it by the media. That's not what happened. So it did resolve the problem, but then when it came to the implementation of it, let's say in Spain, uh, where Franco was basically told to disestablish the church, they threw the baby out with the bathwater, and and they did they did not follow the letter of of uh, Vatican II, which did not encourage the disestablishment of state of state churches. It did not encourage the creation of the separation of church and state. It tried to make accommodations for mixed cultures, 
where you you did not have a unified religion. That, that, that's just not that not there anymore. So if you don't have a unified religion, what rights do religious minorities have in, let's say, a Catholic culture, or what rights do Catholics have in a, a, a culture that is hostile, like the Soviet Union, or a covertly hostile, like the United States of America? These are yeah. issues that needed to be solved, and I think that uh, Dignitatis did solve them, and I think uh, Pope John Paul II explained how it solved them in the address that he gave uh, in Philadelphia uh, shortly after he became Pope. That, that analysis, that speech he gave in Philadelphia is brilliant. It's a, a brilliant analysis of Nostra Aetate and the problems that people were facing, Catholics were facing in the United States of America. Yeah, yeah. I want to get on to uh, Archbishop Vigano, uh, Dr. Jones, um, but I just want to, one question before we kind of get on to that. Uh, how are you doing for time? Because I know we started a bit later than we were, than we were supposed to. How yeah, I'm, I'm ready. Uh, we can go for another 15 minutes if you'd like. Perfect, perfect. That'd be great. Um, so it's not in the scope of this video to cover Amoris Laetitia in depth, the Abu Dhabi Statement or the Amazon Synod. These events during Pope Francis' pontificate have brought controversy, that's for sure. Right. But what, what can the laity do during these troubling times with so much confusion emanating from both wings of the church? Question again, but uh, I guess I want your kind of general reflections on that, um, Dr. Jones. Uh, read my books. There's the, the short, yeah. short answer to your question. Read my books yeah. because I've been struggling That's fair you know, enough. For, for 40 <laughs> years. I've been trying to work through these problems. Yeah. So it's it, it depends on what your problem is. But I think I've come up with a narrative that yeah. explains the facts according to the principles of the Catholic Church with any any type of rupture, without any type of pretending that the facts aren't what they are, or pretending that we have to bend doctrine in order to understand them. So that's yeah. the short answer to your question. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Um, and that's a, that's a very, very good point. Um, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano is a central figure in the conservative Catholic community. He served as nuncio to the United States from 2011 to 2016. He has broken sensational stories and is churning out letters unceasingly of late on various topics which we'll get into briefly as well but what do you what do you know about the archbishop his background uh, his motivations that kind of thing well uh, he he was uh, the uh, during the time he was the nuncio he arranged a meeting with uh, the uh, the uh, county uh, exact title she was a register of marriage uh, register of some yeah, marriage certificates in a small town in Kentucky. And she refused to hand out marriage certificates to homosexuals. Uh, this got some type of nat national attention. And uh, so Vigano, collaborating with some friends of mine down there, arranged a meeting between uh, this lady and Pope Francis when he came over. Well, this caused a huge amount of controversy. Uh, because the press did not want, the, pre the press was grooming Pope Francis at this point to be a certain kind of person. Uh, and uh, it was epitomized by that, you know, the statement where they talk about homosexuals and he says, who am I to judge? This was the Pope that they wanted to hear and the Pope that met with uh, Kim, I forget what her last name was, the, uh, who was not giving out 
marriage licenses to homosexuals. Yeah. That was not that was not the pope that they wanted, and uh, apparently. Uh, Pope Francis's Jesuit advisors got in and attacked Vigano for a faux pas. He shouldn't have done it. You should have known we got bad press and he was ostracized by the Pope when he shouldn't have been. And I think this embittered him. I think it, I, 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 and then you add to that the fact that he was aware of the homosexual scandal, the whole McCarrick story. Uh, and was trying uh, to to do something about it, and again got blocked. So there there, there seems to be that, again this is the time around the same time that Ratzinger, as Pope Benedict, basically threw up his hands and quit. I can't I can't yeah. solve this problem. You know it's a big problem. You've got a guy like McCarrick who is a notorious homosexual, and nothing is happening uh, because he's a good fundraiser. And the money is flowing in because of him, and so he seems he seems to be rehabilitated. Now, whether Pope Francis rehabilitated him or not, that's one of the issues that Vigano raised. But he also raised the issue of the homosexual mafia. Again, now that's that's problematic too, because if there's ever uh, a homosexual mafia in the church, it's in the Jesuits, <clears throat> the Jesuits in America. Read America Magazine. Check out uh, Father James Martin and his books. Uh, these people rule the Jesuits. Whether they're all homosexuals or not is immaterial. The homosexual cabal rules the Jesuits, and it persecuted Paul Mankowski to his grave because he wouldn't go along with it. Pope Francis is a Jesuit, and apparently he's not doing anything to correct the issue. Uh, bishops I know, uh, I'll give you a specific instance, Bishop Purich of Mostar fought a courageous battle against the fraud known as Medjugorje and was basically left twisting in the wind by every pope uh, under his during the time he was bishop. Simply not supported, and then the culmination comes when the pope, Pope Francis, sends a Polish bishop by the name of Hoser to Medjugorje to look into care for pilgrims, the man shows up, he doesn't even have the courtesy of talking to the local bishop who is the authority and then basically uh, um, sets up a whole operation where now we're going to approve pilgrimages without saying whether it's true or not. Uh, and then uh, they force Bishop uh, Parrish to retire. This is scandalous. This yeah. is scandalous. But the same pope that basically there are some bishops who can't get the the time of day from the Pope, but James Martin can get uh, our audience whenever he wants uh, at the Vatican. This is scandalous. And and it's clear that Archbishop Vigano has been scandalized. That doesn't that, make that doesn't make you a scholar. OK, the fact yeah. that you're scandalized and you know that there is something wrong and you can name uh, the fact that there is a homosexual mafia. That's good. But that doesn't make you a scholar. And when if you're going to deal with Vatican II, I think you need to be a scholar. You have to have some type of scholarship here and find out exactly what happened. Because if you don't find out what happened, you're going to start blaming the victim. And I think that's precisely what happened in this instance where Vigano started blaming Vatican II for the troubles that we're having now. This is an insult to the 2,000 bishops who took part in the Second Vatican Council. To say that these, these documents were faulty or that they were negligent, 
or that they did not understand the Catholic faith sufficiently to prevent error from all these things, that's 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 an insult. Yeah, it's I think, a scandal um, in and of itself, and and it's a, it does a disservice to the people who held the line. So to get back to Nostra Aetate, the bishops did not say that the Jews had been exonerated from responsibility for the death of Christ, even though the Jew, uh, the American Jewish Committee and B'nai B'rith were paying Malachi Martin to have them say it. It didn't work. It didn't succeed thanks to the vigilance of those bishops. So to blame something on those bishops when they were vigilant is not, uh, does no, is not, uh, does a disservice to those people. Yeah, I think I've, as the way you the blaming the victim, I've, I haven't heard that before. I think that is quite, um, you know, quite appropriate, I think. Um, so, you know, since the, the sensational stories regarding Pope Francis's involvement in the Mercuric scandal, which, you know, when they broke out, they were, uh, you know, they hit the Catholic world quite hard. Um, he's since moved on to state that Vatican II should be dropped and forgotten and that the council produced doctrinal deviations. The third secret of Fatima was never revealed. He called on Pope Francis to repent, to resign. He's heaped praise on the SSPX. The new mass should be avoided. And his crowning achievement in his letter to Trump, where he heaped praise on, on the president. And he's since predicted that Trump would win the election by the Lord's right hand. What do you make of these follow-up kind of letters and, and statements by Vigano and the message he's communicating to Catholics? I'm sorry, repeat what you said at the end there. What, what was what, the question? So what do you make of uh, these follow-up statements that Archbishop uh, Vigano has made, Dr. Jones, and the message he's communicating to Catholics, these uh, you know, letters that he's sending out daily with these you know, strong statements that he's sending out to Catholics, the ones that yes. I just he's mentioned become, there? What, what do you make of them? He's becoming... He's becoming um, it's not. It's not helpful. He's becoming an. He's be, He's becoming an ideologue. I'm sorry to say this, but it's. It's starting to sound like no enemies to the right. He's identifying with a certain group of people. I guess they. They. You know. They like. They like what he says. LifeSite News, for example, just loves everything that Vigano says. They have good things to say about abortion, but there. Let's be honest here. There's a certain uh, cowardice involved in all of these operations. Uh, as, for example, when Vigano blames Freemasons for the problems in the church. This is right up there with blaming Vatican II. I mean, Freemasonry uh, is an obsolete uh, revolutionary movement. It was certainly a, a, a threat in France. It brought down the Bourbon monarchy in France in the 18th century. Uh, but uh, it's, it's not the issue now. So I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. The people who use the word Freemasonry are the same people who are afraid to use the word Jew. Now, let me ask you, uh, at, right now, uh, all the issues that we're going on, George Soros, for example, funding prosecutors and promoting a color revolution in the United States that's probably going to lead to civil war. Is Freemasonry the real issue here, or are we talk are we are we really talking about people who are afraid to say the word Jew? That's what I see as happening here, both in LifeSite News and in Archbishop Vigano. 
you're avoiding the real issue because you will be punished if you use that word. There's no question about it. They know that. And so what I see here uh, is uh, intellectual cowardice. I'm sorry, but that's what I see here. You're not facing the real issue. When you start talk, blaming Vatican II, when you start talking about Freemasons, when you will not talk about the Jewish role, for example, in promoting abortion, if you're not seeing the battle uh, at the United States Supreme Court right now as a battle between Catholics and Jews, uh, you're, not, you're not in the game. You're not telling the real story. You're afraid to tell the real story, and that's why I'm using the term intellectual cowardice here. We're, I know we're quite tight for time, uh, Dr. Jones, so I, I wanted to cover off a few other uh, topics, but uh, maybe or if you can do it some other time, that would be amazing. Um, things like, um, I wanted to speak about something that I've uh, noticed recently, which is the, uh, let's call it the infiltration of, of traditional Catholicism by a, a pharisaical spirit, something I wanted to get your views on, um, and also uh, just touch a bit in times um, specifically technology in, in the context of end times, but maybe that we can we can do that another time. One one thing I wanted to kind of uh, finish on was um, the, the SSPX, which I know is something you've you debated um, quite um, famously with the great uh, Marcus, who, who was um, a, a scholar that the SSPX still um, kind of use as one of their main bastions, if you um what are your thoughts on on the SSPX and its resurgence in many ways in, in traditional Catholicism? Has your view have, my, you, have my, your views have your sorry sorry no sorry. my views my views have not changed. I said then uh, in 1988. I'm saying it now that SSPX is in schism. Schism is not the cure for heresy. Schism is lack of charity. And with the, this is according to St. Augustine's treatise on baptism and on the Donatists. Uh, the schismatic uh, Donatists, Donatists were Judaizers. They had this Jewish kind of distaste for associating with people who were unclean, and they tried to make it into a virtue at that time. This still pervades the society of Pius X. Okay, and I'm saying, the, I'm saying this based on the testimony of two of their bishops, uh, Bishop, both Bishop Fellay and Bishop Williamson have said uh, the church has cancer. This is what Bishop Fellay said. And if we associate with the church, we will get cancer. This is classic schismatic thinking. Bishop Williamson said something more medically correct. He said the church has tuberculosis and we associate with the church, we will get tuberculosis. This is the fundamental problem that the SSPX has to face. And whenever you bring up fundamental problems, they go into this whole uh, business about, well, Bishop so-and-so said this, and they allow that here, and they do that over here, and that's all peripheral. And that situation has gotten muddier thanks to uh, Pope Francis, who has uh, muddied many situations. I've already mentioned Medjugorje. That's muddier than it, than it was because of St. Pope Francis, and now the SSPX and their relationship to the church is muddier as well. So I'm not so but I'm talking about the fundamental issue here which is schism. There's no point in talking about doctrine. That's not the issue. This is uh, so when B Bishop Williamson again I met him in in London. I was at Wimbledon at their house. 
I walked in and he said, I have a letter on my desk saying, uh, I accept Vatican II in light of tradition. I said, well, go up and sign it. That's the only reason I came here, to end the schism. And then we spent three hours talking about how he couldn't sign it. Uh, he has a death wish. He wants to die outside the church, evidently. And now he's not even in the SSPX anymore. That's the fundamental issue. That's the issue that has to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason I, I kind of uh, bring it up is because the, there are many who say that the indult that Pope Francis gave the SSPX changed things, and they now have, you know, legitimate jurisdiction, and therefore they're, they're, they're certainly not schismatic. Um, but no, I, I mean, I think, I think it is definitely a complex issue, but... Well, look, I mean, the, 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 same, the same thing happened in Medjugorje. The, the Pope has now approved uh, 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 pilgrimages. Well, is the Blessed Mother appearing there or not? So you're going to approve an indulge, but the question is, are you dealing with schism? That's the issue. Again, we have this muddying that's going on constantly and, and doesn't seem to get, get, get resolved. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for your time. I know you're uh, very tight today. Um, so uh, we're coming up to to quarter two um, and if you if you'd come on again on onto the show that'd be great so we can talk about the topics I mentioned earlier um, but yes thank you so much you're welcome and happy happy St Michael's Day as well thank you same to you thank you thank you uh, I'm gonna hit stop recording uh, is that okay from your perspective, yes, guys? Yes, yes. Yep.